0: This evening, I would like to speak about why we have difficulties in our practice, which perhaps is an appropriate topic at this point in the retreat. The Buddha pointed to this um, fact of the experience that we have as we begin meditation practice in a certain example that he used he said, imagine that you were on a battlefield surrounded by a thousand enemies and you were fighting these thousand enemies single-handedly and you conquered them and you did that a thousand different times, conquering a thousand enemies single-handedly a thousand times, but that would be an easier task than conquering the mind so if you are having some difficulties, (laughs) you should not be too surprised. I'd like to speak about what the difficulties are because even though it's this enormously difficult task, it's possible to do. There's a way to do it. There's a path of practice which actually allows us to overcome these thousand enemies a thousand times, to overcome the difficulties of the mind. And the essence of understanding the way to do it, the techniques to learn, has first to do with recognizing who the enemies are, what the problems are, what the difficulties are, so that instead of being confused by them, and discouraged by them, we can actually see them clearly and transform their quality from being a difficulty, transform their energy into wisdom and understanding. The traditional Buddhist terminology, the basic difficulties that we confront in our practice and in our lives, are called the five hindrances. And there are five mental states or qualities of mind that are singled out because they are particularly seductive. Over and over again we get caught up and identified and lost in these five. So to begin to recognize clearly and accurately and precisely what they are, so that when they arise in the mind, instead of being overwhelmed by them or seduced by them, we can begin to work with them in a powerful and transforming way. The first of them is sense desire, sense craving. And this is a tremendously potent conditioning in the mind. It's the energy, it's the basic energy which drives us through samsara, through this endless cycle of birth and death. So it's not an insignificant force that we have to deal with and understand. It's one of the basic, most deeply conditioned forces in the mind. This desiring for sense pleasure meaning desiring for pleasant sight or pleasant sound or smell or taste or pleasant sensation in the body or pleasant mind states. The force of craving, the force of wanting, the force of clinging, of grasping are all manifestations of the sense desire. Why is it a problem? Why is it considered a hindrance? Why is it an obstacle? Because of our ignorance, because of not seeing clearly, not seeing with insight, for the most part, we are deluded into thinking that the gratification of sense desire is going to make us happy. And so that ignorance keeps fueling this craving. We keep thinking that if we can gratify our desires through any of the sense doors, the mind included is another sense door, that if we can gratify those desires, then we'll be happy in our lives. And so we spend a tremendous amount of energy looking for ways to fulfill and satisfy these cravings and clingings. The problem is that it doesn't work, that it doesn't actually lead to happiness, and it does not lead to fulfillment, and it does not lead to peace. Why? Because everything is always changing. And so even when We get what we want, we fulfill our desires, it stays for some time, it changes, and again we're left in that place of craving. So it's a constant process of being non-fulfilled, unfulfilled, and always seeking for more. The Dalai Lama's talk yesterday, he quoted... George Bernard Shaw, who said that there are two paths to disappointment, not getting what you want and getting what you want. (laughs) And I think that, especially living in such an affluent culture as ours, where we have all had gratification of the senses many, many, many times. We've all had that experience of desiring, of wanting, of going for it, of getting it, of enjoying it. And yet somehow or another you find yourselves here. (laughs) (laughs) That should say something to you. It doesn't do it. It does not bring about the peace or the happiness that we're looking for because of its very change in nature. It's a hindrance in another way. Not only does it lead to this frustration of not, not delivering what it promises, and so we, we find ourselves frustrated in our lives if we continually look in that direction, There's another way that it's a hindrance. And that is desire in the mind pulls us out of the moment. What is it that we never want? We never want what we have. We don't have to want it because we have it. And so we always want what we don't have. So the very force of wanting, the energy of wanting, it's as if it lifts us out of the moment and we're reaching out for something. And there's a tension in that. Just for a moment now, reach out for something. With your body, reach. So Just so you really embody reaching. Just hold that. How does it feel? It's not so comfortable, is it? And we're really being pulled out and there's a tension between the experience of being settled back in the moment with what actually is and the wanting or reaching or craving which is pulling us out of the moment. There's that tension between what there is and what we want there to be. Or what we have and what we want to have. So that wanting mind creates a tension in us which prevents the simple settling into and opening to what is actually happening in the moment. Now, you think that in this kind of environment, there would not be that much opportunity for sense desire to arise. I mean, out in out in our society and culture, it's obvious that there's a continual bombardment of messages you know, to do more and to get more and to have more and to accumulate more and to want more. When Sharon and I were teaching in Africa last year, I had a wonderful experience with a kind of cookie. They have a, they have a, they have a brand of cookies called "Eat Some More." it was great eat some more cookies (laughs) which I proceeded to do (laughs) so the message from our cultures whether here or there is very much that but we come here and it's not so much the message there aren't signs up around eat some more, have some more (laughs) And so one would think that the desiring mind would calm down a little bit. But as you've probably noticed, it seems to find outlet wherever and whatever we're doing. What's helpful is to become very accurate and precise in just how desire is manifesting in this context. So you can see very clearly how it's working, the force and the power of that wanting energy. And it takes a lot of different forms. Most of you are quite familiar, I think, with the old Vipassana romance, you know, and just dwelling in fantasy about some person that you might find attractive, spending long time in that kind of thought, thought fantasy. Less obvious, perhaps, there may be a resolve to stay very mindful in each moment, noting every movement, every small detail of what you're doing. And how many times in the course of a day does one look up and around and check out what's happening? And then, oh, yes, lifting, moving, placing. Where is that movement come? Where, where is that looking around coming from? Where is that curiosity coming from? It's coming from a desire. There's a desire in the mind to see, to check out, to indulge. If we can catch that desire quickly, if we can see how it's working, it need not pull us out of our attention to the moment. Another way desire works, which you might notice. Notice the difference when you're doing the walking meditation back and forth and you're very attentive to the sensations in the lifting, in the moving forward, in the placing, you're just in the moment, you're settled in the moment, you're aware of what's happening. Notice the difference between that walking and how you walk when you hear the lunch bell. You will see that there's a difference generally when we hear the lunch bell, some form of desire starts to arise and we can feel ourselves being pulled. It's as if the bell or the smell or the thought is pulling us towards towards the lunch line. It's the force of desire in the mind, the force of craving. Whether it's in very obvious ways or very subtle ways, begin to observe how it's working because it is one of the root causes of suffering in our lives. And it very much is a hindrance in the practice. Because as long as we're identified with desire, identified with that clinging, we're not present. We're not aware. So this desire... Another of the hindrances, or obstacles, or things that make our practice difficult, on the one hand there's clinging, on the other hand there's aversion, or anger, or dislike, or hatred, or fear, or judgment, critical judgment, all aspects of the condemning mind. The condemning mind has one advantage for us over the clinging mind and that is that the condemning mind is always unpleasant. Sometimes with greed, even though it's a hindrance and an obstruction, it's associated with pleasure, and so that fools us a bit more. With anger, or aversion, or hatred, or fear, or judgment, it's always associated with unpleasantness, and so that is a good reminder to us to stop for a moment, to check out what's happening, what is this force? What is this factor in the mind? How is it working? How is it manifesting? You can see that when you observe the anger or observe the hatred or annoyance or irritation on a, on a more minor level that it creates a great turbulence in the mind. And that turbulence obscures the true nature of things. We can't really see very clearly what it is that's happening when the mind is filled with anger or filled with hatred or filled with annoyance. We get caught up in that turbulent energy. And again, one would think that in this kind of peaceful environment, when you're not even talking to one another, that Not much anger would arise and not much irritation and not much annoyance. And yet people find on retreat, sometimes it gets very strong. Begin to watch for those situations where anger is arising. There's an equivalent to the Vipassana romance, which is the Vipassana vendetta. (laughs) There's there's someone here who you just can't stand. We once got a note, a yogi note. This was a couple of years ago. A yogi was requesting that we ask the person who was sitting in front in front of him to please wear different clothes. <laughs> <laughs> they were too bright. <laughs> and this person was getting very upset. <laughs> the Vipassana vendetta will... Find anything. There's a person here that we just can't stand. We don't like the way they walk, we don't like the way they eat, we don't like the way they sit, we don't like the way they dress, and every time we see them, we get irritated. (laughs) I'll give you a little clue. It doesn't have anything to do with that person. And it's a very good time, a good situation to begin to look at the source of the anger or the quality of the anger, the nature of it within oneself. Because as long as we pin it on somebody else, we don't really take responsibility for our minds. So we look at desire, we look at anger, annoyance, irritation. The third of the hindrances, and it's one that many of you have reported you know, in the interviews, very strong in the beginning of the practice is sloth and torpor. Sleepiness, heaviness, drowsiness, dullness. It's just that mind which gets so heavy that even with enough sleep at night, you know, all you're doing is nodding off. No clarity, no wakefulness, no energy. It's essential to come to some understanding of this state of how to work with it because it's quite obvious that as long as slothfulness is there as long as the mind is in that state there's no hope of really getting to deeper levels of understanding this, this mental state of sloth is very aptly named I was reading in some natural history book about the animal called the three-toed sloth And it's a wonderful animal. It hangs from a tree for weeks at a time. (laughs) And it is so slothful, this book said, that actually if you shot a gun right by the side of its head, it wouldn't even turn. (laughs) And every few weeks, it kind of crawls slowly down the tree. And it looks for some food. And if it happens to meet another sloth, maybe they mate. And if they don't, it goes back up the tree. <laughs> In this chapter on sloths, it ended by saying that actually not much is known about them because very few people have the patience to study them. <laughs> <laughs> Given the Buddhist teaching on rebirth, I suggest <laughs> I suggest a active investigation of this mind state. <laughs> there's desire, this anger or irritation, there's sleepiness, slothfulness, restlessness and agitation. And again, this sometimes gets very powerful. Just this feeling of restlessness where one cannot sit still, one can't sit, one can't walk. Whatever one is doing, there's a feeling of agitation in the mind, agitation in the body. And again, it's quite clear that until we learn how to be with it, how to understand it, how to balance it, it will tremendously hinder our ability to develop penetrating insight we're not going to be able to see the nature of things as long as this force is operative in the mind. The last of the hindrances is doubt and in some ways doubt is the most crippling, it's the most powerful because when doubt arises in the mind Unless we can deal with it effectively, it absolutely undermines all our efforts and energy, even to deal with the other hindrances. We just give up. And so we have to look at doubt very carefully and learn to recognize it very quickly. Because if we don't, it plays this overpowering role in our practice. And it's a tremendous barrier, a tremendous obstacle. So what kind of doubts arise for us? One kind of doubt is doubt about the practice. You know, as people sit, these doubts come up. Is this really going to work? Is it going to do anything? Because It sure looks weird. You know, everybody's going around like zombies. They're not talking to anybody, not looking at anybody moving very slowly, and it's very strange. You look around, and it is. And so doubt can arise. Doubt about one's ability, even if you have a good sense, as perhaps many of you do, that the practice is effective and is powerful and actually leads to the goal of liberation, of freedom, if we've overcome that first doubt to some extent, still this doubt, this self-doubt can come up. Now, I can appreciate the power of the path, but I'm not strong enough to do it. I can't do it. And if we allow that thought, if we allow that doubting mind to take over, to grow strong, it just stops us and we don't go any further. So we have to learn how to look at it, how to be aware quickly enough so that it doesn't have the chance to overpower the mind. Upandita, in his teaching, had a very simple strategy for dealing with the hindrances. He said, chop their heads off. That was his basic message. And that way of dealing with the hindrances really comes from an acknowledgement that our minds and the wholesome factors of the mind, the factors of mindfulness and attention and effort and energy are stronger than the hindrances. We can have confidence in the power of our minds to deal with each of these states because we have the power. It takes practice. So what we have to do is be open to each of these hindrances when they arise. For example, we're sitting or walking and desire comes into the mind. Not to indulge, not to get carried away, not to get lost in it, to recognize the force of that desire very quickly, not to underestimate the power that it has. And we do that a lot. We sit or we're we're going through our practice and we think, oh, this is just a little desire. I'll just go with it for a little bit or enjoy it or spin out the fantasy a bit more. As soon as we give way to the desire, right? get lost in it and identify with it, it steamrolls and it begins to build up more energy and more force and more strength, and it gets increasingly difficult to then extricate oneself. And so it's not to underestimate the power of these hindrances and to realize that if we can catch them in the beginning, if we can be attentive enough so that just as desire arises, we see it. There's desire in the mind. Not judging. Not judging the desire, not judging oneself. Simply seeing it for what it is. Making the strong mental note. Desire, desire, desire. Coming back to the breath. Choosing with a strong intention not to indulge it. And that will take some effort. That will take some resolution. Pay attention in the course of the day to which desires, and we each have our own peculiar ones, which ones catch you again and again. See where it is that the mind goes out. Where does it get caught? And be on the lookout be watchful for those particular desires. If you see them quickly, you'll see that they don't have very much power. The power they have is the power we give to them, and we give them the power when we're not mindful, when we're not aware. Now, as you're walking or moving about, if you, if you see that you have the tendency to be looking around, you know, which distracts the continuity of attention, becomes an energy leak for you. Really investigate that process. See what's happening in the mind. See if you can catch that subtle desire that takes your attention from the activity that you're doing to something outside of yourself see how quickly and carefully you can begin to see how the force, how the energy of desire is working in us. Something that very much helps to diminish the power of desire also is to be moderate in your food and in your sleep. The more we eat and the more we sleep, it seems to just fuel this whole process of wanting, of desiring. And so the more restrained you can be, the more you can cut back to a moderate level. It doesn't mean that you should fast or that you should necessarily go without sleep. Take what's necessary, but overindulgence tends to strengthen that force in the mind. And we really have to marshal all our our forces for dealing with it. Because, As I said earlier, we should not underestimate the depth of the conditioning. It's what has driven us through countless lifetimes. And so we have to make a very conscious effort to develop those skillful factors of mind that will deal with the desire, that will help to diminish it that will help us to become aware of it. Same thing with anger, annoyance, irritation. The quickest way to feed anger or to feed annoyance or irritation is to get lost in the story of it. There's always a story. You know, the person in front of me is wearing too bright clothes or... People next to me are making too much noise. Or the person in front of me took too much food. Or it's too cold, it's too hot, it's whatever. And if we get lost in the story of it, it just, it builds and it builds and it builds and the anger gets stronger and we get more and more caught up, more and more turbulent. See if you can discriminate or see the difference between getting lost in the story and feeling the energy. That is to become mindful of the energy of anger. Feel what it's like in the body. Feel the tightness or the burning or the boiling quality. Feel the quality in the mind with a strong mental note. Not identifying, not getting lost, not condemning. Because if you sit there condemning anger, what are you strengthening? You're strengthening anger. You're strengthening aversion. It's not to condemn, and it's not to judge, and it's not to wallow. It's just to see it, to feel it, to note it carefully, not to identify with the content. Just an interesting example of how the content and getting lost in it feeds the, feeds the energy of anger it happens very often with sound you can be sitting and focusing on the rising, falling, or in and out and I don't know whether the, the radiators have started clanging yet but they clang and they'll probably clang for the next three months But mostly people don't get upset by that. You know, the radiators clang, 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 hearing, hearing. And yet if the person next to you is rustling or sneezing or making some noise, generally the mind is not so equanimous. You know, why can't they be quiet? I came here to meditate and they're supposed to be still. And you get more and more worked up. The sound itself may be no more distracting, may be no more abrasive, but the story catches us. We create a story about it, and we get lost in the story, and then we get increasingly distraught. And so to see that process, to come back to the feeling, to the energy feeling of it, to make the strong note, and strong in this sense does not mean judgmental. It just means very active, very precise, annoyed, irritated, anger, more with a sense of interest to understand what that energy is rather than the sense of identification with it. So we see it, we note it, we come back to the breathing. Desire, anger or annoyance, irritation, Sleepiness. what to do with it, how to work with it when it comes. In the interviews, we've given some suggestions. The first strategy should be to gather whatever remnants of mindfulness you have, and whatever little pockets of energy may still be there, and gather it all together to look at the sleepiness so that you see exactly what the experience is which we are calling sleepiness. Because sleepiness is an abstraction for certain very definite sensations. What do you feel in the forehead? What do you feel in the eyes? What do you feel in the body? What's the quality of the mind? In the same way that you can go into pain... You can also go into sleepiness and dissect it. And that very act of investigation often dispels that cloud, especially so if you do it right at the beginning. Just the first sign of drowsiness in the mind. Don't give it a chance to kind of roll over and overwhelm the mind. As soon as you feel it, Bring all of your attention to bear on looking at it very carefully. Sometimes in addition to that, some things that can help serve that purpose, if you feel that in this battle the sleepiness is winning, open your eyes. Sit with your eyes open and continue to investigate the feeling. Stand up. It's harder to fall asleep standing and sitting down, although people have done it. (laughs) Something that I found helpful when when I was doing my sitting, I would get at particular sittings in the day. It was usually the first sitting after breakfast for some reason. I'd be sitting and I could feel what I called the pre-nod sensation. I could feel the sensation starting here and coming up And from having watched it come up many, many times, resulting in a nod. (laughs) And it got so definite, it's like I could feel that sensation, and I knew that that was going to give birth to the nod. (laughs) And so once I began to recognize that, just at that point of first feeling it, that's when I opened my eyes, sat up very straight, and just waited it out staying with it, looking at it, but that additional bit of effort, of keeping the eyes open, sitting up straight, it allowed me to maintain some degree of awareness, and for the most part, that feeling then passed away. Then again closed the eyes and continued. So what it takes is the willingness and the intention not to give into it, not to feel sleepy and then get lost in these thought forms, oh, I'm so tired, I didn't sleep much last night, I ate too much, I really should take a nap. Because all of those thoughts are just going to increase it. It really takes being a warrior with it. Seeing that, this is a hindrance, it's an obstacle to practice. And again, not to underestimate the power of it. It's a strongly conditioned force in the mind. But we can work with it. We have the power to overcome it. You will see that of all these hindrances, sleepiness, although the strongest very often in the beginning, is the one that most people overcome the earliest in the retreat. That after some time, maybe it'll be a week or two weeks, generally, as the practice builds momentum the force of sleepiness begins to diminish, which, again, gives us encouragement in the practice. So, There's desire, there's anger, there's sleepiness. Restlessness and agitation, how to work with it. Obviously, it's to notice it, it's to be aware that it's present, it's to focus the attention on it. There's one way or there are different ways of focusing one's attention, and it might be helpful to understand the different perspectives that we can take on different qualities of energy in us. And it's something like a camera. We can think of the mind like a camera. Sometimes we have a zoom lens on the camera, and we're really zooming in in a very careful, microscopic way just on the moment's experience very careful, very precise, very mm, close. At other times, that lens is not going to be appropriate. It's not going to work so well for us. Because when there's strong restlessness or agitation, it's as if the energy field is too big or too wide to be accommodated by that very narrow focus. And so what we want to do then is to put a wide-angle lens on the camera to make our attention very wide, very spacious, very open, so that we can accommodate the energy of the restlessness and not be either battling with it or lost in it, identified with it. We create the space for it to be there for us to be mindful of it. A couple of ways of doing this One way, at that time, when restlessness or agitation is very strong, you could not zero in on the breath, but feel the breath within the whole body. Give your mind a little broader base of attention. So you feel the whole body awareness, you feel the breath within it, and you're aware of the sensations of restlessness or agitation. If you need to make the mind even wider than that, more spacious you might spend a little time listening. Just listening to sound. Because as we listen, the mind gets very wide, very open. And then this restlessness does not seem to, it's, 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 it's not seem to be so overpowering because we've made our minds wide enough to deal with it. How to deal with doubt. doubt about the practice, doubt in oneself. Doubt in the practice, when that comes up in the mind, again, it should be attended to very carefully because, as I said, in some ways it's the most undermining of all the hindrances. So we really have to learn to recognize it and to treat it very carefully. Sometimes some simple clarification of the doubt can help to dispel it. So if you have doubt about some specific aspect of the practice, to come and speak to one of us. Sometimes just a few words, different perspective of understanding, can help to let go of it. Sometimes a reflection, a reflection on the Buddha, A reflection on all the people who have walked this path. The Buddha's enlightenment and the enlightenment of all the beings since then have come as the culmination of this very same path that we're walking upon. It's this path of awareness, it's the path of mindfulness, of attention. There are many techniques and many traditions. But when you distill all of that, the path of awakening comes from waking up in each moment. It comes from being aware in each moment. And that's what we're doing. We're walking on this very same pathway. When we can reflect on that, it can give inspiration to us, can remind us that actually this effort to be aware and to be awake and to be mindful Is the way, is the process for opening the mind, for awakening the mind. Upon a little reflection, it should seem obvious that if we want to understand what's happening in the deepest possible way, what we have to do is look. That it's through the looking, through the investigation, that we will understand. And so that's what we practice. We practice looking carefully. Sometimes there's doubt about one's ability. No, I can't do it. It's too hard. I'll come back next year. You have to catch that, that particular tape right, in the mind very quickly because it's not true. It may be there in the mind, and it may have a very powerful effect in the mind, but the realization that it is not saying what's true because all of our minds have the capacity, have the capability to develop in awareness and to develop in wakefulness. It is a potential, it is a characteristic, it's inherent in the nature of the mind. And it's not just in some people's minds and not in others. We all have that capability. It takes practice, it takes effort, it takes work. It's just as if you wanted to practice doing anything. Learning to play the piano, learning to play tennis, to ski, to whatever. Learn a foreign language. When you first start, it's difficult and it's awkward and it's painful and it doesn't seem right. And there are all the problems which come as we learn and develop a facility in doing something. But if there's persistence, if there's perseverance, You practice, and you practice, and you practice. And then suddenly, well, actually it's more more gradually, the mind develops certain strengths. The power of mindfulness, of concentration, of energy, of balance, of equanimity, of all those factors of enlightenment, they slowly begin to develop. But it doesn't develop just dropping down from heaven it doesn't develop accidentally it develops out of our own efforts out of our own commitment it's possible for all of us to do it and so there's tremendous encouragement for you to continually make the effort to begin again to come back in a very attentive way just to the moment to see what's happening and you will see over this period of time and this gift that you've given yourselves of these three months is wonderful because it gives you enough time, if the effort is put in, to develop in very significant and powerful ways. And so there's a twofold aspect to working with the hindrances in terms of attitude. One is not underestimating their power and so taking a very firm stance with regard to them, not indulging them, seeing that we have to be aware of them quickly and accurately and precisely. And at the same time, having confidence and respect in our own power of mind, in the power of the awareness, in the power of the mindfulness, to deal with them, because we have that, and we develop it. Do you have any questions about working with these hindrances? I would be extremely restrained in terms of any kind of contact, even if it's non-verbal contact, especially eye contact. Be very restrained. Don't be looking around. I don't think it's necessary to go to the extreme yet of avoidance. But if you're not looking about and you're quite restrained in that regard, it won't be so much of a problem. And taking a very firm stance in the mind when you see that thought or fantasy arising, so that you don't indulge it, knowing it is possible, and not only is it possible, it has happened, that people have spent three months lost in the fantasy of a Vipassana Romance, I mean, if that's what you want to do here, it's fine, but it's not what the practice is about, and it would be the waste of a very good opportunity. And so you don't want to indulge it at all. You really want to see it very quickly. There's a kind of um, response in the mind, which I found helpful, for repetitive fantasies, repetitive desires that just keep coming back and back and back, at uh, one, one sitting that I was doing, there was this, this very strong one. And finally, I just said in the mind, okay, enough. You know, it's like, okay, enough. You cut it. And it's not with anger, and it's not with judgment, and it's not with aversion. It's just enough. You, you cut it off. <laughs> and again, we have the capacity to do that. We have the power to do it but you have to have the intention to. You have to have the willingness to. To see that that actually will help you develop your practice rather than, and well, this will make the hour go quickly, you know, and, and indulge it. So I, I would work in those two ways. The, the restraint of the senses so that there's not a lot of contact through the sense doors, especially restraint of the eyes um, and also watching very vigilantly in the mind and really just cutting it when it arises. You'll see once you do that and you have the experience of it you'll begin to feel a tremendous sense of confidence you know, that, that we actually have the power not to get lost in these, in these distractions and these hindrances and it gives a lot of, a lot of confidence a lot of energy. What is the actual feeling of restlessness? <coughs> Can you describe the sensations of it? It's fast, uh, in, inside the body, the the body. Yeah. Okay, what do you do at that time? <laughs> <laughs> Does it help? Sometimes. Sometimes, sometimes uh, I go and run in the back or something like that and get all the energy out. And I can come down. And I'm wondering whether that's just following the central desire. You might try... You might try. Sometimes doing that is fine. You know, where you just walk... Uh, I would be somewhat contained in the expression of it in the fast movement so that you're not just you don't take a 3 mile walk right but if you were walking to walk back and forth so you keep it contained keep it somewhat focused but at a faster pace you could also try the other extreme and see how slowly you can move and it may be that the effort to concentrate and to slow down may balance out that restless energy, may focus the energy. Restlessness, there's a balance between samadhi, concentration, and energy. When there's too much concentration and not enough energy, that's when we get sleepy. When there's too much energy and not enough concentration, that's when we get restless or agitated. There's too much energy going on and it's not focused enough. And so what you want to do is find some way that can begin to use or channel that energy in a directed way. Because it's that directedness of it which will begin to smooth out the agitation or the restlessness. It might be walking back and forth quickly. It might be starting to move very slowly. But if you have in your mind that what you have to do is direct those strong energy sensations, then, then you can work in whatever way seems appropriate to do that. But it's the balance of energy with concentration which will um, smooth the restlessness. Also, I, I very much appreciated um, Deepa Ma's response the other night it was to a different question, although the response, I think, is, is also somewhat appropriate here, too. The other night, the question was to a lack of motivation, and not wanting to practice. So if you're sitting, you get up and walk. If you're walking, you come and sit. In the same way, if you feel restless, very restless, where it's really overpowering you, and you can't be mindful of it, and you can't direct it, which is the first strategy... But if it's so overpowering, if you're sitting, change your posture. Stand or walk. If the restlessness is still there, again change the posture. Right? Always in a directed way, in a focused way, and it will it will dissipate. It seems like there's a, a balance place around doubt between a doubt that is just a doubting mind and a doubt that. We're so paid attention to when something actually is not working and it's, it's a balance point that I'm looking at a lot around circumstances and I wonder if you could say something about that um, did you hear the question in the back? the, the question was uh, feeling that there's a difference or wanting to understand the difference between those doubts which come and are simply the the nagging doubting mind and those doubts, which really are questioning whether something is working correctly in the practice, and so to be taken more seriously. Mostly, it's. Um, there's a sequence or a progression of working with it. And so, all doubts, as soon as they arise, if you take this very firm attitude of seeing them as doubt, 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 come back to the breath. Seeing what happens when you do that, seeing if the doubt actually goes away. If over a period of time there's a particular doubt that is continually recurring, even after you note it strongly and keep coming back, then you should investigate it a little further, either to investigate it within yourself or to get some clarification from one of us. Okay, one last question. Yeah. Yeah, have you ever used fasting to strengthen your faith? If you have, do you elaborate on that? I have done a little bit of fasting, never with that purpose in mind. And so I don't... I don't really have much to say about that. For the, for the meditation practice, what we have found, although fasting as a general principle can be a very helpful and wonderful thing to do. For the most part, we do not recommend it when people are doing intensive practice because a common experience in fasting is that there are many energy swings, that people feel a lot of energy and high energy and then very low energy. And in the practice, what you want is a sustained energy. You really want to to keep the efforts in a very, very sustained and continuous way. And so what's generally found to be helpful is enough food to keep the energy going, to be very moderate with it. And you will notice, and you probably have noticed already, the relationship of the amount of food you take with how you feel. If you eat a lot, you're going to get very sleepy and drowsy. If you eat moderately, there'll be much more wakefulness. And so pay attention to that relationship. A thousand enemies a thousand times. But with the magic weapon of mindfulness. It's, it's like uh, one of these Star Wars uh, <laughs> laser swords. <laughs> right. There's tremendous power in awareness, it's the most potent force in the mind it's the force of awakening and so bring to bear all the power of awareness and wakefulness to each of these states, include them in your practice and you'll see that it's very possible to deal with them effectively so that we transform them from being obstacles into stepping stones on our path thank you Please be watchful now as you stand.